Happy Easter and welcome to Christ Central. My name is Owen. I get to serve as one of the pastors here. Uh, Whether you're joining us in person or online, thank you for spending Easter Sunday morning with us. Well, today is the first Sunday in over a year that we have been able to gather together like this as a church. Adults, youth, and children all together. And I can't tell you how good it is to see you all like this, especially the youth and the children. Uh, Perhaps one of the most important lessons that we can learn from this uh, global pandemic is that we should never take for granted the privilege that we have to gather together like this as a church for public worship. Now, for those of you who may be joining us for the first time, we've been studying the Gospel of Luke together, and our goal has been to follow Jesus around as he moves through the book of Luke. We've been paying attention to the things that he said and to the things that he did, and as we observe his actions and as we listen to his teachings, our prayer has been that we as followers of Jesus would become more certain of the things that we believe that Jesus really is the Son of God, that he really is the promised Messiah, and that he really is the Savior of the world, and that Jesus really is worth following, no matter how hard that can be at times. Because today is Easter Sunday, the day that we get to focus on and celebrate the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, we're going to jump to the end of Luke's gospel and look at the text that tells us about the resurrection of Jesus. So turn with me, if you have your Bibles, to Uh, The Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, and we're going to read from verse 1 to 12. At our Good Friday service, Pastor Sam preached from Luke 23 and preached to us about the death of Jesus on the cross for our sins. Today, we're going to read about what happened three days later. People of God, this is the word of our God. Would you please give it your careful attention? But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood before them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living Among the dead. He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. That was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. We're living in hard and troubling times, aren't we? Though I am overjoyed to see you all here, I'm also sadly aware that not all of our church family is here because of safety restrictions. And as I see you wearing masks and socially distanced, I'm unable to see your beautiful smiling faces. And I'm painfully reminded of the havoc and the social isolation that the COVID pandemic has wreaked upon the world And upon our lives. Nobody imagined that this global pandemic would last this long when we first went into quarantine over a year ago last March. 
And COVID hasn't just disrupted our lives, but it's taken so many lives, including the lives of some of our own loved ones. And also in the past year, we have seen the ugliness and the pain of racial injustice. Last year, we were painfully reminded of the racial injustice experienced by the black community in the unjust deaths of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd. And, in, and for many in the black community, the ongoing trial of Derek Chauvin for the murder of George Floyd has been triggering, re-traumatizing, and emotionally exhausting. And now we're seeing the ugliness and the pain of racial injustice that's being experienced by the Asian American community. There has been a distressing surge in hateful and violent acts committed against the Asian American community, particularly against the elderly and the women, the most vulnerable among us. And because all lives matter, it is deeply troubling and heartbreaking when black lives and Asian lives are treated as if they don't matter. Personally, I've never been more emotionally exhausted from all the anger and grief and frustration that I've been feeling over the rise of anti-Asian racism, hatred, and violence. So between COVID and racism, whether it's anti-black racism or anti-Asian racism, and all the angry arguing that's happening back and forth, whether racism is that big of a deal or not, Life feels harder and more troubling than I can remember, and the world that we live in seems more broken, more divided, and more volatile, and more out of control than I can remember. You know, I can't remember the last time that I've been this exhausted and I struggled this much to have hope. And maybe you can relate to what I'm saying. Maybe you're tired too. Maybe you're struggling to have hope as well. Today, church, I want to have our eyes turn to the resurrection of Jesus because the resurrection of Jesus gives us the hope that we desperately live, need right now, a hope that can sustain us and even strengthen us as we live through very hard and very troubling times. Here's my sermon for today, two points, just like Pastor Sam on Good Friday. You all seem to love a two-point sermon, so I have two points for you today. Here's the first, the reasonableness of the resurrection of Jesus and then secondly, the assurances of the resurrection of Jesus. Let's start with the reasonableness of the resurrection of Jesus. The two central tenets of the Christian faith are these. First, we believe that Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world. Second, we believe that Jesus was raised from the dead three days after his death. Those are the two core tenets of biblical Christianity. And of those two tenets, admittedly, the resurrection of Jesus is harder to believe. And in fact, the resurrection of Jesus may be the hardest Christian tenet to believe, but it is the most important because without it, there is no biblical Christianity. But I get it. Uh, most of the time, people don't come back from the dead, so it's understandable that many people would disbelieve and reject the resurrection of Jesus. Now, whether you believe that the resurrection of Jesus happened or not, every thoughtful, 
And every intellectually honest person has to reckon with two historical facts. Every person has to look at these historical facts, these two historical facts, and come up with an explanation that explains these two facts. And here are the two historical facts. The first is this. There was an empty tomb where the body of Jesus had been laid. Our passage today talks to this, uh, speaks to this historical fact, doesn't it? The women went to the tomb early that first Easter Sunday morning, and when they got there, the tomb was empty. The body was gone. They found an empty tomb. Here's the second uh, historical fact. There were a large number of people who testified, who swore that they saw the resurrected Jesus. Now, our text today doesn't speak to that, but there's many other passages in the Bible that tell us that there were a large number of people who claimed to be eyewitnesses who saw the risen Lord Jesus. Now, we're not talking about one single sighting of Jesus, but we're talking about hundreds of people who claimed to see the resurrected Jesus in multiple different locations over a period of 40 days. So every intellectually honest person has to reckon with these two historical facts. First, there was an empty tomb. And second, there were hundreds of people who claimed, who swore that they saw the resurrected Jesus. How do you make sense of these two historical facts? A biblical scholar, N.T. Wright, said this. If you rule out a resurrection, then you have a formidable challenge to come up with the historically possible alternate explanation for these two facts as well as for the birth of the church itself. So if the resurrection of Jesus did not happen, how do you account for the empty tomb and for the number of people who claim to see Jesus alive? Well, there's basically three alternate explanations that you can choose from. Here's the first. And it goes basically like this. Jesus didn't really die. It was a botched crucifixion. Jesus didn't die. He just fell unconscious from all the trauma and pain that he endured. And then in the tomb, three days later, he regained consciousness. So Jesus wasn't resurrected. He just regained consciousness. Now, there are some serious holes with this explanation. The first being the Roman soldiers were pretty darn good at execution by crucifixion. In fact, that's what they were known for. The most gruesome, the most painful, the most humiliating, and the most effective way to put someone to death. And it is highly unlikely that a trained and experienced Roman centurion would have mistaken an unconscious body for a dead body. And even if Jesus didn't die, even if he somehow survived the uh, crucifixion, he would have been in critical condition on the verge of death. So how can a man who is barely alive, with broken legs no less, remove all the linen from his body, get up on broken legs, move a heavy stone, and walk out of that tomb? And even if he were to somehow manage that, how would the sight of a barely alive man inspire people to believe that he was resurrected from the dead and that he had conquered death? It is an alternate explanation, but not very convincing. Here's a second alternate explanation that goes around. It basically goes like this. The body of Jesus was stolen, and the so-called eyewitnesses were people who just imagined or hallucinated seeing Jesus. 
Now, the empty tomb being explained by the body being stolen, that's reasonable. Uh, that's, that's fair. But what about these so-called eyewitnesses? Was it really hallucinations? Was it really their hyperactive imagination uh, because they were so desperate to see Jesus that they just imagined seeing Jesus alive? And is it really reasonable to believe that hundreds of people, not just a few people, but hundreds of people would have the same hallucinations, would have the same imaginary sightings of Jesus? And as you guys all know, hallucinations are individual experiences. There is no such thing as a group hallucination. But there's a time when 500 people at the same time saw the resurrected Jesus. It is highly unlikely that 500 people individually would have had the same exact hallucination at the same exact time. And also, over the period of 40 days, Jesus appeared to hundreds of people in multiple different locations. Is it really plausible to believe that they all were imagining it, that they were all hallucinating it? It's an alternate explanation, but not very convincing. The third alternate explanation goes like this, and I think this is the most plausible out of the three. It goes like this. The body of Jesus was stolen, and then the disciples conspired to start and perpetuate the greatest lie in human history, that Jesus was resurrected from the dead when they knew that he wasn't. Again, of all of the alternate explanations, this one seems to be the most plausible. Uh, but this explanation also has some serious problems, and here's the main one. Would the disciples really start and perpetuate a lie and keep it even at the cost of their own lives? In addition to that, how were they able to convince hundreds of others to join them in their ruse, in their deception, so that they pretended like they were eyewitnesses of Jesus when they really weren't. Now, it's one thing for 11 guys to sit around, right, and to conspire and come up with a lie to share. It's 11 guys could possibly do that. But how do they convince hundreds of others to join them in their lie and even give their lives for that lie? All the disciples went to their death swearing that they saw Jesus alive. Not a single one of them ever turned. Not one. Every single one of them went to their graves swearing they saw Jesus alive. And also overnight, a bunch of cowards who ran away to save their own lives became fearless and courageous proclaimers of Jesus' resurrection. And they were willing now to suffer for their message, even die for their message. What can explain that kind of radical change in them? And even if somehow they mustered up the courage and the boldness to start sharing and proclaiming this lie, even if that's the case, then we have to, as, as Christians, we have to sit here and accept the fact that that uh, they pulled off the greatest con in human history. And it's a con that we're still believing today because we sit here believing and celebrating the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. If Jesus was not raised from the dead, we as Christians are deceived fools and we're to be the most pity among all people. And then there is the Christian explanation. Jesus was resurrected from the dead, and people saw him after he was resurrected. Christians believe what the angel said in verses 5 and 6. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. 
He is risen. The resurrection of Jesus explains both of these historical facts, doesn't it? There was an empty tomb because Jesus came back to life and he walked out of it in power and glory. And there were witnesses who swore they saw the resurrected Jesus because they did. The resurrection of Jesus also explains how a bunch of cowardly runaways became courageous preachers overnight. They actually saw and interacted with the resurrected Jesus. And since they were convinced that Jesus was raised from the dead, they can proclaim that no matter what was threatened against them, whether they were threatened beatings, imprisonment, or death, they were willing to proclaim their message because they knew it was true. Friends, when you know that something is true, it gives you mad courage. Makes you fearless because you know it's true. So let me ask you today, what explanation that accounts for these two historical facts will you believe? And oh, by the way, some of you are thinking, oh, Pastor Owen, we know that everything in the Bible is made up. It's all fiction. We don't have to believe anything in the Bible. Well, you're not off the hook by having that kind of attitude. Because non-Christian historians will attest that there are massive and irrefutable historical records that show that Jesus Christ was an actual, real historical person, that he was actually crucified, that his tomb was found to be empty, and that there are hundreds of people who claim to see him alive. Those are historical facts. You do not have the luxury of saying, oh, that's all fiction, imaginary, so I don't have to think about it. No, they're historical facts. So, if you, reject the rejection, uh, if you reject the resurrection of Jesus, and if you want to be intellectually honest, which of the three alternate explanations will you believe? How will you personally reckon with those two historical facts? The empty tomb and hundreds of people who swore to their graves that they saw Jesus alive. Now, for those of you who still have a hard time believing in the Christian tenet of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, I invite you to think with me just for a moment. If the God that the Bible describes actually exists, then we can all agree that nothing is impossible for an omnipotent God. An all-powerful God could easily raise the dead, right? So, If an omnipotent God exists, then he could easily have raised Jesus from the dead, and that would be a clear explanation as to why there's an empty tomb and why hundreds of people saw Jesus alive. The resurrection of Jesus is only unbelievable and impossible to you if you believe in the non-existence of God. If you believe that God cannot exist, a God who can raise the dead. You see, the truth is nobody can prove to you that the resurrection of Jesus actually occurred. But it goes both ways, right? You cannot prove that the resurrection of Jesus didn't happen either. Just as you can't prove that God exists, you cannot prove that God doesn't exist. Everybody in this room, whether you're a Christian or not, we all exercise faith. Some of us believe that God exists, and some of us believe that God doesn't exist. We all believe something that we cannot prove. And so if a God who can raise the dead exists, then the resurrection of Jesus is the most reasonable explanation as to why there's an empty tomb and why there were hundreds of people who swore to their deaths that they saw Jesus alive. 
Belief in the resurrection of Jesus is not a blind leap of faith, as if it's unreasonable to believe that, as if we have no reasons whatsoever to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. We have very good reason to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. First reason, the empty tomb. Second reason, hundreds of people who swore that they saw Jesus alive. Second, let's talk now about uh, the assurances of the resurrection of Jesus. Now, the resurrection of Jesus gives us several assurances, but today I want to just briefly mention three. Someone once said this, the resurrection of Jesus is both intellectually credible and existentially satisfying. And it's the assurances of the resurrection that make the resurrection of Jesus existentially satisfying. Here's the first assurance. The resurrection of Jesus assures us that our sins really are forgiven. In Romans chapter 4, verses 24 and 25, the Apostle Paul wrote, It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. To be raised for our justification means that the resurrection of Jesus is the proof of our justification. It's the proof that our sins were actually fully paid for by the death of Jesus Christ. You know, when you go shopping at Costco, in order to leave the warehouse with the items in your cart, what do you have to do? You have to show the receipt. The receipt is proof that everything in your cart has been paid for in full. The resurrection of Jesus is like a receipt. It's the proof that the debt of our sins have been paid in full and that Jesus paid it all for us when he suffered and died for our sins on the cross. Friends, it doesn't matter how many mistakes you've made in life or how bad your sins have been or how far you've wandered or strayed from God. Some of you here think that your sins are so bad that you can never be forgiven. Some of you think there's no way I can pay for all of my sins. I have good news for you today. You do not have to pay for your sins. Somebody else paid for your sins. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. And because Jesus paid for all of your sins, that means you are fully forgiven and there is now no more condemnation for you. Some of you here today are struggling with guilt and shame and regret over the things that you've done. And today I want to tell you to look to the resurrected Jesus and let your guilt, your shame, and your regret melt away. Let it vanish like a vapor because your guilt and your shame cannot stand in the presence of your resurrected Savior. Second, here's a second assurance. The resurrection of Jesus assures us that we too will be resurrected and that the whole world will be restored. In 1 Corinthians 15 verses 20 and following, the Apostle Paul wrote this, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, listen to this, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to him. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. 
In the Old Testament, the first fruits was the earliest part of the harvest, and it was a pledge and a guarantee that the rest of the harvest was coming. And when the resurrection of Jesus is called the first fruits, what it means is that it's the pledge and the guarantee that the rest of the resurrection is coming, that the resurrection for all of us who belong to Christ, our resurrection is coming. You see, just as surely as Jesus was raised from the dead, we who belong to Christ, we will be raised from the dead as well. And not only us, but the whole world will be resurrected, so to speak. The whole world, the whole cosmos will, will be renewed and restored. In Romans 8, 21, it says this, Creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Pastor Tim Keller, reflecting on this verse, wrote these beautiful words. All the effects of sin... All the decay of the world will be healed. Not only will there be physical liberation from disease, aging, and death, but there will be social liberation from poverty, war, racism, and crime that infest our world now, as well as psychological liberation from fear, guilt, shame, and despair that infect us now. Friends, the resurrected Jesus is also the returning Jesus. And when Jesus comes again, he will renew and restore the world. And he will transform this broken and decaying world into the new heavens and the new earth. And on that day, everything wrong will be made right and everything broken will be healed. On that day, there will be no more COVID, no more cancer, no more sickness of any kind. On that day, there will be no more racism, no more hatred, no more violence, and no more injustice of any kind. On that day, there will be no more sin, pain, crying, and no more dying anymore. And because we know that the resurrected Jesus will come again to restore the world, we can now, by faith, work for those things now, those things that will be gloriously true when Jesus returns. What do I mean? As the church, we work now, by faith, to give glimpses and previews of the new and restored world to the world. You see, by our good works, through our works of mercy and justice, what we're doing is we're pulling bits of the future into the present. And as we bring the future into the present, we give glimpses and previews of the new world that is to come. You see, in the new world, there will be no more sickness. That's why we fight against sickness now. That's why we heal. Because when we heal, we're showing the world that a new world is coming where sickness is no more. In the new world, there will be no more racism, no more hatred, no more violence, and no more injustice. And that's why we, by faith, fight against those things now. That's why we seek to promote justice and peace now. You see, as we love and treat people from different races and different ethnicities with kindness and respect, as you treat all people justly as precious image bearers of God, we give the world a glimpse of what is to come. Because in the new world, people from every tribe, nation, and tongue will be treated with dignity and respect. In the new world, there will be true peace and true justice for all of God's people. Not just some of God's people, but all of God's people. So the resurrection of Jesus assures us that we too will be resurrected one day. 
and that the world that we're living in, this broken world, will be restored. On that day, Jesus will make all things new and all things right, and the world that we all long for will come. Here's the third and final assurance. The resurrection of Jesus assures us that Jesus is with us and for us. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, the resurrected Jesus said this, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Friends, do you realize a dead Jesus can do nothing for you? Only a risen Jesus can save you. Only a risen Jesus can be with you and for you. You see, if Jesus is not raised from the dead, do you know where he is? His body is in the ground somewhere in Israel. But if Jesus is raised from the dead, and if Jesus really did ascend into heaven, and if Jesus really sent the Holy Spirit into our hearts, then it is not fiction but fact that Jesus is with us and for us by his Holy Spirit. And because Jesus is risen and alive, he sees you, and he sees all that you're going through. Even if your parents can't see, even if your husband or wife can't see, even if your best friends can't see, Jesus sees, and he cares, and he knows, and he's with you. Even if everyone else in your life leaves you, Jesus will not. Jesus is the friend who sticks closer than a brother. Only a risen Jesus can intercede for us. Only a risen Jesus can stand before the Father as our advocate. Only a risen Jesus can comfort us in all of our sorrows and suffering. Only a risen Jesus can carry us when we're too weak to carry on. And only a risen Jesus can keep his promise that everything that we're going through he will call us to work together for our ultimate good. That it will make us more like Jesus. That it will bring us into a deeper fellowship with Jesus. That it will prepare us for eternal life with Jesus in the new world. Only a risen Jesus can assure us that he is with us. And that he will safely bring us home to his heavenly kingdom. So what? Uh, so how do we have hope during these hard and troubling times. Let's circle back to that. The New Testament uses the word hope in two different ways. When it comes to hoping in humans and in ourselves, uh, it's what we call relative hope. It's an uncertain hope. For example, if I loan someone some money, I hope that they will pay me back. There's no guarantee. It's a, it's a relative hope. But when hope, but when the object of our hope is God, then hope means confidence, certainty, and full assurance. Hoping in God means believing that God will keep every one of his promises. Just as God kept his promise to raise his son from the dead, he will also keep every other promise that he's given us in his word. So how do we live during these hard and troubling times with hope? Let me give you an example. If a Christian woman gets cancer, she will rightly put her relative hope in doctors and in medical treatment. But her main and ultimate hope must be in God. She can have the certainty that God's will for her is good and that her worst case scenario is resurrection and eternal life. You see, if she puts her main hope in doctors and in medical treatment, 
And if she gets the report that the cancer has actually spread and that she only has 10 months left to live, that news is devastating. But if her main hope is in God and in his promises, she will be like a mountain that cannot be shaken or moved, and she will have a peace that surpasses understanding even when she gets an unfavorable report. During these hard and troubling times, we can place our relative hope in medicine and in people. Last week, I got the COVID vaccine. Grateful for it. And I hope that this vaccine will keep me from getting COVID, that it will keep me from getting sick from COVID or even dying for COVID. That's my hope. And as I see young Asian Americans standing up and lifting up their voices, denouncing anti-Asian racism, as I see the next generation becoming more aware of racial injustice, I can have hope that that anti-Asian racism and hatred and violence will subside that those violent acts will will stop, that myself or people that I love won't be uh, targets or victims of violence. But those are all relative hopes. My main and ultimate hope must be in God so that I can say, even if I get COVID, even if I get sick from COVID, even if I die from COVID, I can trust God who has promised resurrection and eternal life to me. And even if anti-Asian racism continues to go up, if violent and hateful acts continue to go up, even if I or my loved ones are victims of anti-Asian racism, I can have hope that one day when Jesus comes again, that racism and injustice of all kinds will be no more. It will not always be like this. So during these hard and troubling times, we can place our relative hope in medicine, in people, and even in the work of justice, but we must place our main hope, our ultimate hope, in God. You see, the resurrection of Jesus tells us that we're forgiven, that we're headed for glory, and that he is with us, that he will never, ever leave nor forsake us, and everything that we're going through will work together for our good. And friends, when you know that, when you have that kind of hope, it gives you the strength to live through these very hard and troubling times without despairing while hoping in a God who raised his son. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do live in hard and troubling times and many of us are struggling to have hope. It's hard and we're struggling and we're tired. But thank you that on this day, you remind us that Jesus is raised from the dead. And that means that all of our sins are forgiven. That means that we are headed for glory. And that means that you are with us until the end of the age. May this resurrection hope strengthen us for these hard and troubling times. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.